big hello and a massive welcome to episode 21 of a Northern Counties Paranormal podcast hosted by Within the Bucket Wood, the first podcast episode of 2024. In this episode I'll be looking at a newspaper article on a ghost that terrified Sunderland in the year 1786, then we'll plunge into a brief tale of the region's World War II spooks before closing with a look at the region's New Year traditions from the 18th and 19th centuries. On Saturday the 14th of January 1786, the Newcastle Courant published an article simply entitled A Ghost. The town of Sunderland has been lately much alarmed by an apparition of a female figure, all in white, with a child in its arms, which had appeared to many in the dead of night coming from the sea and advancing with solemn steps up the streets. An unfortunate young woman having been drowned in that neighbourhood, it was generally believed to be her perturbed spirit. Some of the revenue officers prowling in a quest for legal prey, meeting her and not thinking their duty extended to the obligation of examining visionary beings, took care to give her large room. Even the sentinels who have boldly looked death in the face, distilled almost to jelly with their fears, stood dumb and spoke not to it. The story becoming known to the officers military, one of them ordered a soldier to speak to it, if it should appear on his guard, but he begged to be excused. For though he feared nothing living, he said he could not stand before a ghost. On which the officer, enjoining him secretly, took his firelock and stood sentry in his room, saying with Hamlet in a somewhat familiar occasion, and with the proper variation, I'll watch tonight, perchance twill walk again. If it assume the inspiring form of woman, I'll speak to it, though all hell should gape, and bid me hold my tongue. He accordingly took his station, the ghost appeared, and when it had advanced nearly opposite to him, he, not like the royal Dane, with fear-distorted countenance and tremulous accent, received it, but with the coolest intrepidity, and finding it began to quicken its pace as he approached, and that on nearer view it had more of the masculine than of the feminine in its demeanour, he drew his sword, swearing if it was vulnerable he would run it through. It then stopped, called for mercy, and stopping, delivered itself, not of a child, but of two cags of hollands, and throwing off a sheet, discovered not the semblance of a woman, but the real form of a stout smuggler, and surrendered at discretion. Thus his majesty's revenue there have been happily relieved from the fraudful interference of supernatural agency. Ghosts will not now be suspected of smuggling, and custom house officers may lay violent hands on the spectres of the night, without fear of premature perdition. My main story this week comes in the form of wartime memories, looking back at paranormal activity allegedly linked to the Second World War. In September 1939, the Nazi war machine began its attack on Poland, and the Second World War erupted when Britain and France honoured their defensive pact. This was a war in which 62 million people lost their lives. With six years of warfare before the war was finally won by the Allies, every element of life at home in Britain felt the effects including those supposedly spiritually inclined. Public interest in spiritualism, and in this case the interest of the police and the Royal Navy, was perked in 1941 when spiritualist medium Helen Duncan reported during a seance the sinking of a warship before the news was broadcast to the public. 
This again happened in 1943 when Duncan reported the appearance of a ghost who claimed to have died in the sinking of the Barham, a ship that was only declared sunk many months later. It seems that the government took an interest in Duncan after this, citing her as a risk to the country's security, speculation claiming that what they feared was for their D-Day plans to be seen by Duncan and leaked to the wrong people. On the 19th of January 1944, Helen Duncan was arrested, charged with vagrancy. However, instead of the small fine for this alleged crime, she was held in London's Victoria Prison for four days before she was then charged with conspiracy. This charge was then changed yet again, and Duggan came before the judge at the Old Bailey charged with contravening the Witchcraft Act of 1735, along with a charge of larceny. Duncan was actually found guilty under the Witchcraft Act, but found innocent of the other charges. She was sentenced to nine months in jail and denied the right to legal appeal. Interestingly though, whilst in jail, Duncan had many distinguished visitors, including Winston Churchill. The war reputedly left its ghostly mark in many areas of the UK, especially in relation to bombers, fighters and aviation hangars. In the Peak District, a ghostly Lancaster bomber, thought to be the plane known as a Vicky the Vicious Virgin, has been seen flying close to ground level, and then the sound and sight of an explosion can be heard. This flying apparition has allegedly been seen every 15 years. The plane in question crashed in 1945, killing its crew during a routine training operation. A similar story can be found in Kent at Biggin Hill, where a ghostly spitfire has often been seen and heard, as if it was coming into land at the airstrip. RAF Hendon, Surrey and RAF Cosford, Shropshire, also have many tales of hauntings, from apparitions of airmen being seen to disembodied voices and feelings of being watched. An unusual case of a reported Second World War haunting can also be found at RAF West Malling in Kent, where people have reported a brick crashing into their car out of nowhere, only for that brick to vanish upon trying to find it, though the damage done to the vehicle doesn't. So how on earth do you explain that one to the insurance company? There have also been numerous sightings of a figure addressed as a World War II airman, who has been blamed for throwing the phantom brick. Historians have surmised that this is a replay event, when during the war a Spitfire crash landed, and the pilot was killed when a brick crashed through his canopy and hit him. Perhaps a more grisly apparition awaits visitors to RAF Wellsbourne in Warwickshire. This unfortunate soul is said to be that of a navigator who ran into the moving propeller blades of a stationary aircraft. His ghost is now said to be seen retracing his final steps. Up here in the northeast of England, of course, we have plenty of our own reported World War II ghosts. Just before the outbreak of war in August 1939, Aircraft Hudson N7290 crashed into Cambridge Road in Middlesbrough, killing the crew, though there were no civilian casualties. The plot of land where the crash took place has been reported as very atmospheric, and occasionally passerbys have reported the sound of crackling flames and the smell of burning. Not too far away, Thornaby Snooker Club can be found, sporting tales of a phantom airman being spotted within the main snooker hall, as well as the sound of balls being struck on the tables when in fact none are in play. There has also been the sound of a distant aircraft being reported, with engines that sound way too old to be modern aircraft. Historically, the snooker club was built over the Martinet Road Officers' Mess of the Thornaby Airfield, dating to the war. The site of RAF Thornaby itself is also reputedly haunted, with sightings of airmen, reports of cold spots and also being jostled as if someone unseen has walked past. The site of RAF Gretham, near Hartlepool, seems to have developed tentative stories about phantom airmen and even a poltergeist. There was only one source could be found for these stories, it can't really be substantiated. 
RAF Middleton St George, known locally as Goosepool and now Teesside Airport, also has its share of ghost stories, with an airman dressed in helmet and jacket being seen a number of times around the area that was the officer's mess, and ghostly footsteps have been heard in many of the hangars following unsuspecting visitors around. Newcastle and Tyne's castle keep was used as a joint fire warden and air raid post during the war, with the ground floor being used as an air raid shelter. The keep itself escaped the ravages of the war, but occasionally men in wartime uniforms are seen standing in one of the western window alcoves. The Northeast Aircraft Museum, formerly RAF Usworth, on Old Washington Road, came into the headlines of local press just before Halloween in 2005 with an interview about local Sunderland ghosts with Sue Scott of Paranormal Team Mysteries of the North in the Sunderland Echo. On the 20th of January 2006 I visited the museum and was shown around, and by that time the museum had a collection of strange photographs around the place, as well as stories of a number of apparitions seen around the place of World War II airmen, as well as at least one sighting of a fellow in First World War uniform. One memorable sighting, I was informed, was when an elderly lady came to visit the museum and told the staff that she'd had a very informative discussion with a young man when walking around, a young man dressed in an Air Force uniform from the 1940s. There was no one of that description present at the time. The site, then called Hilton, first opened in 1916 as a flight station for B-Flight of No. 36 Squadron, became known as Usworth in 1918 when it was used by A-Flight. On the 13th of June the next year, the site became disused and remained so until March 17th, 1930. In the intervening time, the only use for Usworth was as a base for Alan Cobham's Flying Circus. The camp was divided into two halves, the north camp upon which the Northeast Aircraft Museum is built, providing living and dining facilities for the men of number 607 Durham Squadron. The south camp, now under the Nissan Works, contained the armory, pilot's huts and squadron office, among other buildings. Most of the historical references to the site coming back into use begin in the 1930s. RF Usworth was a focal point for the Northeast Aerial Forces during World War II. On the night of the 2nd of October 1940, Usworth was attacked, as was Whitburn, where a searchlight battery was machine gunned. Usworth was also attacked on the night of the 28th of October 1940 and the 28th of April 1941. On the 10th of February 1942, a Hawker hurricane out of Usworth flew into the ground at High Marley Hill, killing the pilot, Sergeant J. Graham, of the Royal Canadian Air Force. The phantom sound of his plane crash is still said to be heard on the anniversary of the incident. From June 1940, RAF Usworth was home to number 607 Squadron, and from September of the same year, number 43 Squadron, with both squadrons operating hurricanes. Decades later, with hurricanes now only being seen during air shows, the site has now become a mecca for paranormal enthusiasts and investigators from across the UK. Back in 2005, the Harpley POW camp in County Durham also opened its doors to paranormal investigations, with one team gaining exclusive rights to investigate the place, with the then new owners reporting apparitions, odd sensations, etc. I was invited along to the investigation as a guest, and while I saw a multitude of very natural and environmental factors being attributed to the paranormal by many of the other guests, I didn't actually experience or see anything myself. Though at the time, with the knowledge that many of the prisoners chose to stay and live in the area when the camp closed, it did bring out a very real issue of ethics when investigating alleged paranormal activity that the location or teams therein want to attribute to people with living relatives in the vicinity. Much like the ghost hunters you see on YouTube, 
wandering through a cemetery with an EMF meter and a camcorder while the cemetery is being visited by relatives of the interred. This isn't actually something I'll go into this episode, but I am hoping to deal with it as a very real discussion sometime this year. Moving back across to Newcastle, the old air raid shelter beneath the Granger Market became subject to paranormal investigation back in 2013. The Granger Market itself has had the reputation of being haunted for some time, with staff reporting odd disturbances and apparitions when alone in the market after closing time. For those that don't know the market, it's a large sprawling enclosed building with entrances on all four sides, each locked after closing. The market itself essentially forms streets between stalls. I'll pop some images in the main episode page so you can see what I mean. Back in 2001, in her book Ghosts of Grangertown, Vanessa Histon reported on a haunting at what was Robinson's Bookshop, which closed its doors in the market in 2014. The bookshop had moved into the market in 1884, and nothing was reported amiss until the summer of the year 2000, when for a period of approximately three weeks the owner would open up in the mornings to find that books and stock had been moved around, and some of the books were open as if someone had been reading them. Security cameras in the market picked up no intruders, and after those few weeks the disturbances stopped abruptly, with no explanation given at all for any of it. At the time, the suggestion within the paranormal community was that the odd reports in the market could have been caused by the large air raid shelter lying beneath it, entered through a hatch in the floor by one of the market stalls. So on March the 23rd, 2013, the investigation group called Haunting Evidence was given access to the market area and the air raid shelter to investigate. I was one of the guests on the night. I'd only heard stories about the market and nothing about the air raid shelter itself, but the group's approach was interesting playing music from the 1940s into the shelter to see if the tunes would spark a reaction. A lot of the alleged activity recorded at the time was via EVP, or electronic voice phenomena, and took the form of knocks and a whistle, though in my mind it was impossible to rule out outside noise interference. After all, the market is in the centre of and surrounded by a bustling city. Looking at similar sites with reported World War paranormal activity in the northeast, there's also the Victoria Tunnel but I'll be detailing the tunnel separately in an upcoming episode. As this episode will first air on the 1st of January 2024, I thought I'd have a look at some New Year traditions in the past, and I am curious as to how many of these do actually continue into present day. In the 18th and 19th centuries, New Year's Day held a number of beliefs, mostly revolving around what not to do in order to avoid a year of bad luck. In many parts of the north it was thought that borrowed fire on New Year's Day was akin to inviting doom into the household, so careful preparations were made on New Year's Eve to make sure that fires didn't lose their last ember. Also allowing a flame to leave your house in many cases was thought to be even worse luck, but this custom wasn't restricted in northern England and was in fact first mentioned in the 8th century in a letter from St Boniface to Pope Zachary, stating that At Rome on New Year's Day, no one would suffer a neighbour to take fire out of her house, or anything of iron, or lend anything. So 1,000 years later, the fire custom was still a thing in many parts of the north of England. It was also thought to be bad luck to sweep out the house or throw anything out on a New Year's Day, with the idea that gathering everything in the house would signify an upcoming year of plenty. If you went out on New Year's Day, it was good and proper to head out with a bottle and a glass, 
as meeting someone empty-handed was also classed as bad luck, as was meeting a person with a monobrow if they were the first person you met on that day. In Westmoreland, it was customary to give children gifts on New Year's Day, but that the aforementioned children would actually have to beg for those gifts the day before. A number of customs in Northumberland in the early 19th century revolved around wells, an example being the village of Walk-on-Tyne. The village had three wells tapping into water springs, and it was custom that on the morning of the new year, the villagers would all try to be the first to a well to take what was called the flower of the well, or the first drink of water in the new year. According to folklorists such as Brandon Denham, the person who was the first to drink the water would actually gain witchcrafty powers, such as being able to pass through keyholes or even fly at night. A far cry in attitude from previous centuries where such beliefs would have landed the drinkers in rather precarious straits. A similar custom involving the well at Bertley Wood, near to walk, also took place around the same time, but with the belief that whoever was the first to fill a flask or bottle with the water would have good luck for the rest of the year, and also that the water in the flask would never spoil. A lot of Northern English customs at New Year were heavily influenced by Scottish law, especially the tradition of the first foot. In Napier's 1876 book, Folklore, Superstitious Beliefs in the West of Scotland Within This Century, he writes of the New Year. On Hogmanay evening, children were all washed before going to bed. An oat bannock was baked for each child. It was nipped round the edge, had a hole in the centre, and was flavoured with caraway seed. Great care was taken that none of these bannocks should break in the firing, as such an occurrence was regarded as very unlucky omen for the child whose bannock was thus damaged. It noted illness or death during the year. Parents sat up till about half past eleven, when the fire was covered and every particle of ash swept up and carried out of the house. All retired to bed before twelve o'clock, as it was unlucky not to be in bed as the new year came in. A watchful eye was kept on the fire lest it should go out, for such an event was regarded as very unlucky, and they would neither give nor receive a light from anyone on New Year's Day. Neither fire, ashes, or anything belonging to the house was taken out of it on that day. In the morning we children got our bannocks to breakfast. They were small, and it was unlucky to leave any portion of them, although this was frequently done. The first foot was an important episode. To visit empty-handed on this day was tantamount to wishing a curse on the family. A plain-souled person was an unlucky first foot. A pious, sanctimonious person was not good, and a hearty, ranting, merry fellow was considered the best sort of first foot. It was necessary for luck that what was poured out of the first foot's gift, be it whiskey or other drink, should be drunk to the dregs by each recipient, and it was requisite that he should do the same by theirs. It was against rule for any portion to be left, but if there did happen to be an unconsumed remnant, it was cast out. With any subsequent visitor, these particulars were not observed. I remember that one year our first foot was a man who had fallen and broken his bottle, and cut and bleeding was assisted into our house. My mother made up her mind that this was a most unfortunate first foot, and that something serious would occur in the family during that year. I believe, had the whole family been cut off, she would not have been surprised. However, it was a prosperous year, and a bleeding first foot was not afterwards considered bad. If anything extraordinary did occur throughout the year, it was remembered and referred to afterwards. One New Year's Day, something was stolen out of our house. That year, father and mother were confined to bed for weeks, 
the cause and effect were quite clear. During the day, neighbours visited each other with bottle and bun, everyone overflowing with good wishes. In the evening, the family, old and young, were gathered together, those who during the year were out at service, the married with their families, and at this meal the best the family could afford was produced. It was a happy time, long looked forward to, and long remembered by all. Thanks for listening to the first episode of 2024. As per usual, if you'd like to know more about the Within the Boggartwood project, please visit the main website at theboggartwood.uk. On the website, you'll find more information on each episode, as well as a few written articles, social media and Patreon links, and contact information, should you wish to share your own tale of the strange and mysterious for me to read out on an episode. So, I shall say Happy New Year to you all, and I hope your first foot remembered their cake and booze when they visited. So until next time, take care and stay safe.